This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to For Real, a bi-weekly nonfiction books podcast that puts the spotlight on books that tell it like it is, or at least try to. We'll cover new releases, backlist finds, and more. For Real is a book riot podcast and, host, and is hosted by me, Kim Ukra, and fellow rioter Alice Burton. I'm recording this week's episode on Friday, May 11th. Uh, hello, Alice. You are finally back as our co-host. Hello. So glad to be back. Yes, that is excellent. So tell me, have, did you read anything interesting in the time that we were not podcasting together one week? I did. Some of it was for this episode, but most of it was actually fiction, I am sorry to say. Oh, um, which, yes. right, like never let its shadow darken our doors. Um, but, uh, <laughs> but there we are. I actually spent a lot of time in the sci-fi fantasy section of Barnes & Noble, which I also almost never go to. And it was, there's so much stuff. There's so much stuff. There is a book, uh, and I completely forget the name, something with Prometheus, but it has Victor Frankenstein teaming up with Mary Bennett from Pride and Prejudice to like, what? I right. Yeah. I don't even know, but it's, it's on my list now. Cause I didn't buy it at the time, but I'm like, I keep thinking about it. So I'm psyched about that. Yeah. That's pretty epic. What, what about you? Well, I wanted to do a quick follow-up on Bachelor Nation by Amy Kaufman, which is a book we talked about a couple of episodes ago that I was, I think, just started reading, um, and you were very excited about it because you like The Bachelor for The Bachelor, and I like reality TV and how it gets made. Um, so I was going to just say that I finished it, and I thought it was really funny, and it was a super interesting look at um, the kind of the behind the scenes at how a show like that gets put together. Although... Um, I watched a few episodes of the show Unreal, which is a fictional version of a Bachelor-like television show. Uh, and so I felt like that was uh, the TV show is produced by a former producer of The Bachelor. Does that? Yes, that makes sense. <laughs> I don't even know. Um, and so I felt like some of the stuff that I was learning in Bachelor Nation, I kind of had gleaned from that show and the way that it's produced. But um, yeah, it was super interesting, though. I do also wish... I felt like she spent a lot of time interrogating like the questionable aspects of The Bachelor, right? Like there are questionable aspects about how that show is constructed and like what expectations it sets up and whether like the people going on it genuinely believe that they're going to find true love or if they're doing it because they want to become Instagram influencers. Um, and so she interrogated a lot of that and I appreciated it. But then the end, she just sort of was like, well, that stuff is kind of bad, but I'm still going to watch the show anyway because I like it. Um and so it was kind of a weird, like, weird conclusion, I guess, too. But um, speaking yeah. speaking as someone who follows a lot of those people on Instagram and is <laughs> fully aware that most of them are only on the show to become Instagram influencers, uh, I also don't care, and I'm still going to keep watching it. I can't explain it. <laughs> it's just really riveting television. Up until like when they get to like the final three or four episodes, that's when they're like like all really aiming in on the like, hey, it's uh, true love and we all very much believe in this. And you're like, no, we don't. That's not why we're watching this. And so I usually, <laughs> I 
I usually tune out around that point, but um, I am definitely going to pick this book up if you still liked it after finishing it. I did. I did. Yeah. When you said true love, it I felt like true love trademark. Like that's how it <laughs> is. Not like. <laughs> anyway, uh, that was Voucher Nation. Uh, so now we're going to jump into our first segment of every episode, which is new books. So stuff that's come out recently that we are excited about, that we have read and enjoyed or whatever. So um, I'm going to let you go first because you have an interesting one that it looks like. Yeah, so this one actually came out April 17th, but I missed that episode. So I get to pick it this episode. Um, It is called The Darkening Age, The Christian Destruction of the Classical World by Catherine Nixie. Uh, What I have to say about this is basically Catherine Nixie does have a giant chip on her shoulder about Christianity. She starts out kind (laughs) of trying to cover her bases in the intro being like, oh, no, Christianity also did some like great stuff. But she's it's the I read a review that was like clearly her editor made her add that part. So she <laughs> is uh, uh, I think she studied the classics in uh, college and she is uh, she's just very, very upset, understandably, about when the uh, when Christianity became very, very popular around 300 with uh, conversion of the emperor Constantine. Um, a lot of classical art and literature and just a lot about the classical world was destroyed. Um, I think it said we have 1% of Roman literature left from that time. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, quote unquote pagan Roman literature, uh, and just a lot of stuff that they were, they, they defaced a lot of really beautiful art or just completely destroyed it. Um, and it, I really valued the book if you can, again, kind of read between the lines and like get past her chip on the shoulder attitude. Um, Anyway, sorry, that was a line from a musical and it's the music man. I just realized that. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, so if you can get past all that, it's got a lot of it's like a really good explanation of the other side of the story that we don't normally hear and uh, is not. I mean, again, I went to a Christian high school. We didn't talk about how all of this stuff got destroyed. Um, we didn't mm-hmm. talk about a lot of the attitudes of the early church fathers and um, how they kind of treated the class. I mean, they weren't the classics at the time, but, you know, this this extra- actually very helpful learning. Um, and they kind of treated it like garbage. Uh, so... I think while if you go in, re- like, first of all, with that attitude of, OK, so she's got this one viewpoint, but then also realizing while reading it with that viewpoint that some of the pictures she paints of some of the early church fathers are very one sided and they did other things that were good as well. Um, I came off and I, I talked to an ex-girlfriend who was actually a minister and I was like, this early church father is horrible. And she was like, well, but she was like, yeah, he did that. But he also was really, really anti like the rich hoarding their resources and was trying to get them to share them with the poor. <laughs> and I was like, oh, that's good. So, um, yeah. Good to I, know, uh, I guess. Whatever. Yeah. But again, it, it just in terms of giving a broader view of the of the picture from kind of, uh, I would say, like 100 to I think it starts a little earlier than that to about like the early church, which is like 300, 400 A.D. Um, yeah, it was good. So again, Darkening Age by Catherine Nixie. Nice. 
That sounds good. Um, so the first book I'm going to mention is one that you also are excited about. So we, we can jump in with some thoughts on it too. Um, it's called Damnation Island by Stacy Horn, and it comes out May 15th, so the day this episode comes out. Um, and the subtitle is This Poor, Sick, Mad, and Criminal in 19th Century New York. Uh, and the book is all about um, Blackwells, which was an institution in New York City with, on what is now Roosevelt Island. And this institution took up the whole island, and it consisted of a lunatic asylum, two prisons, an almshouse, which I looked up into that is a home for the poor, and several hospitals for various types of people. And so it was conceived, Blackwell's, as, Blackwell's Island, as this big modern humane facility for people who are too poor or too um, mentally ill or to be in prison or, or that kind of thing. Um, and so they had all these um, grand ideas about how they were going to try and help people. And then it just like turned horrible. And uh, Charles Dickens called it a lounging, listless madhouse. Uh, and so Damnation Island, the book is uh, kind of a history and investigation of Blackwell's Island. It uses um, the voices of the people who lived there and thinkers of the day. Um, and one of the details that I got really excited about when I saw the book is that um, Blackwell's Island is the madhouse where Nellie Bly, uh, the lunatic asylum that she went undercover in for 10 days to um, write her book, 10 Days in a Madhouse. Oh. Uh, very descriptive. Um, so Nellie Bly was this crusading journalist, and she did a lot of like early investigative um, first-person kinds of stories. She was like George Orwell did a little of that, but she was a lady, and she was doing that too and better, I think. Um, but anyway, so she went undercover at an institution on Blackwell's Island and then wrote her book about it. Um, and so I got really excited to learn a little bit more about because I've actually never read that particular book of hers. Um but she's just a really interesting person. And so having her have a tie into this place um, was kind of fascinating to me. So that's one of the reasons I'm excited about it. And also like Stacey Horn is just a really, really great writer. She um, has written, she wrote a memoir about her experiences participating in like an adult recreational choir that's really beautiful. Um, and she wrote a book about um, a police precinct in New York that was a really interesting kind of in-depth, researchy, journalistic piece. Um, so I'm excited to see her do something kind of completely different, which is a historical research piece. Um, yeah, I really I really like her as an author. So, um, But yeah, you were excited about this one too, I think, yes? I was, and I've only read like chapter one. But two things that, um, I, that have really stuck out to me so far are one, that Blackwell's Island is only two miles long. And as you were saying, it's got a lunatic asylum and, I mean, quote unquote, lunatic asylum and uh, prisons yeah. and an almshouse and like almshouse. And you've got all of those things on this tiny island. And then also she was saying that uh, they had the convicts taking care of the the yeah. patients at the, at the mental uh, asylum. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then, you know, that one doctor whose name I've already forgotten uh, said something like, basically, this is a terrible idea. And they didn't do anything about it. And it was just like yeah. that alone. Um, I was like, oh, my gosh, we're only on chapter yeah. one. And this is already going so badly. Yeah, I'm interested to see because I think one of the threads that she kind of opens in the intro is about it's it's a story about institutional failure and the failure of governing boards and people in charge to really like care for others. Um, so I'm interested to see how that thread kind of plays out with all of it, too, because, yeah, it's like one chapter in and I'm always like, and someone thought this was a good idea. Like, really? So I'll be good. Uh, that's Damnation Island by Stacey Horn out May 15th. So today from Algonquin. Dang, that's yeah, I'm, I'm psyched to finish it. It's it's really fascinating so far. 
Mm -hmm. Um, My next pick is The Mirage Factory, Illusion, Imagination, and the Invention of Los Angeles by Gary Christ. It's out May 15th from Crown Books. Uh, So what this is, Gary Christ, he's done a series of kind of like the history of cities. I read his New Orleans um, book, which was awesome, um, which he kind of tied around uh, the creation of, not the creation of New Orleans, but like the uh, jazz age of New Orleans. So kind of the part that people are super interested in um, with, you know, like Mm -hmm. it's red light district and like Jazz's birth there and all of this stuff. And then um, he also wrote one about Chicago that I have purchased but not read yet. But so I was really interested in, in looking at the Mirage Factory and, and learning more about the history of Los Angeles, which basically he says, right, it's a new city, even for America. Um, Los Angeles is pretty much, you know, like a desert because it's California. And until around the turn of the century last year, like not last year, last century. So around like 1900... <laughs> Um, what an age we live in. Uh, around 1900, uh, Los Angeles suddenly became this metropolis and it was the, centered around three people, um, the way that Gary Christ, um, kind of posits his book. I don't know. Um, and the first one is William Mulholland, which there is a great episode of Drunk History about him and how he built <laughs> Jack Black plays William Mulholland. Um, so it's about, yeah, it's so good. Uh, so he designed the massive aqueduct uh, that would basically make urban life possible um, in, in that area of California. So b- he did this by s- pretty much stealing water from another town. Um, and I think they're still mad about it. <laughs> And obviously, right, like Los Angeles is currently having a water crisis, but by building this aqueduct, they were able to have water for over a century so far. Um, So that's the first person. The second is D.W. Griffith, who, of course, directed the very, very racist Birth of a Nation, um, but was at this sorry at the time uh known for his pioneering work in film he was a director and um just did a lot of really innovative stuff and kind of made the movie industry set in los angeles prior to being in los angeles it was in basically like chicago new york um and then they realized Hmm. oh you can (laughs) you can film year round here that's amazing amazing yeah um and then the third person is amy semple mcpherson who was a charismatic evangelist um she had founded a temple in los angeles called angelus temple um which when i went to los angeles i was i saw and i was so excited because um the building is still there and this drew like thousands and thousands of people like she was a religious revival and um she was a really controversial figure but uh i flew to new york to see a musical about her um, which I believe is called Scandalous. And um, it uh, was produced by Kathy Lee Gifford. And that's my little side note on Amy Semple McPherson. But anyway, so I was very psyched that she was the third person included in here. And uh, just kind of it gives like a really good background and grounding in what made Los Angeles the city that it is today. So again, that is The Mirage Factory by Gary Christ. And it's out May 15th. There was just like so much delay for really nerdy stuff in that explanation of that book. I can't even. <laughs> it was so good. It was so good. Um, so my final pick for new books this week is one that um, I haven't read, but I feel like it's probably one of the more anticipated books of the year. So I felt like it was important to at least mention it. Um, and it is one that I am interested in picking up. I just haven't yet. And um, the book is Not That Bad, Dispatches from Rape Culture, which is a collection of essays edited by Roxanne Gay. Um, and it is uh, a collection of original and previously published pieces that 
address what it means to live in a world where women have to measure the harassment, violence, and aggression they face. Um, so it is, yeah, a bunch of books talking about rape, or excuse me, essays talking about rape culture and, and how it has affected other people and that kind of thing. Um, and I was, it's interesting to me because the contributor list is, is long. There's a lot of essays in this book, but um, there aren't a lot of really names that I recognize. There's a couple of actresses, but otherwise, I don't know. They just, they feel like kind of an under the radar group perhaps. And I hope that's not just me like having a total blind spot. Um, and uh, someone else will look at this list and be like, oh my God, how did you know any of those people? But um, I think that's a really interesting approach for a book like this to really not center it too much on on big names or, or you know, writers that a lot of us would be familiar with, but to let other new and different voices speak about that. So um, I found a link that has um, all of the contributors or the table of contents in it. So I'll put that in the show notes as well. But um, I think it's just a really important and timely book. And Roxane Gay is great. And so I have no doubt that um, a collection that she's put together and put herself into um, is going to be really, you know, intersectional and interesting and thoughtful and complicated. So uh, the book is called Not That Bad, Dispatches from Rape Culture, and it's edited by Roxanne Gay. Yeah, I've been seeing that around. And, and yeah, that, that seems like an important book to have. So yeah, thanks for talking about it. Yeah. Of course. All right. So we're going to shift gears now and we're going to move into uh, this week's weekly theme. Uh, and I have to say, give a shout out to my sister, Jenny, because she is the person who suggested this weekly theme. And I think it is great. Uh, we're going to talk about books about royals because the royal Yay! wedding of Harry and Meghan is coming up soon. Uh, and I am very excited about that. I probably not very secretly, like I'm very fascinated by the royals and like what all this stuff is about. Um, and so, yeah, since the royal wedding is coming up, Jenny, my sister, is very excited about it. And she thought we should talk about nonfiction about the royals. And uh, that's a good fit because I've read a bunch of nonfiction about the royals and have a lot of them on my, my lists and all of that. So um, I'm going to go first if that's okay. Yeah, go for it. Cool. So the first one I book I wanted to mention just really briefly is uh, Elizabeth the Queen by Sally Bedell Smith. Um, and we talked about this one on a previous episode in relation to the TV show The Crown. Uh, it's a biography of Queen Elizabeth that is epic, um, but it is a really... Uh, Queen Elizabeth II, uh, so the, the current Queen Elizabeth, um, and it's just a very like thoughtful, kind of kind and warm biography of her and her life, uh, which is super fascinating just if only for like the length of time she has been the monarch and all of the changes that she has seen to her family and to the world and to her country and everything like that. So um, that is one that I read and really enjoyed, but I didn't want to go into it too much because we've talked about it once already. Uh, Elizabeth, the Queen by Sally Bedell Smith. Um, the Queen biography I do want to talk about is called Victoria, the Queen by Julie Baird. Uh, and this one is uh, another giant biography of a queen. Um, <laughs> I've told people that, like, I don't read biographies of uh, old white dudes. Like, I just can't. But apparently I can read giant biographies about old white ladies um, without any problem <laughs> at all. Because <laughs> these are both, like, enormous books. Um, <laughs> Victoria the Queen, uh, it's about... Uh, an intimate and personal biography of one of her longest serving monarchs. And so Victoria is really fascinating to me because I know you've talked about you don't care about Victoria very much, but I think she's super interesting. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> it's okay. Whatever. We can disagree on this one. Um, so she ascended the throne when she was 18 years old. Um, after spending most of her childhood, nearly all of it being manipulated and sheltered by her mother and her mother's aide. So they, you know, 
nefariously or not, perhaps they kept her really sheltered and they were very protective of her. I think hoping that when she perhaps because when she became queen, they wanted to be able to manipulate her and rule kind of in her stead or whatever. Um, so when she finally was crowned, she was 18 and finally the queen of England. She, it was the first time she ever got to make any decisions for herself. And so she became the queen and then also had to like become an adult, all very in the public and kind of as a spectacle. Um, and so I just, I love that Baird's biography shows how like smart and stubborn and engaged Victoria was as she, as much as she could be during her reign. Um, and although Victoria is probably best known for her very long and very public mourning of her husband, Prince Albert, when he passed, um, this biography really does a lot to show that she was engaged as a monarch and when it's engaged in a, as a woman and a wife, even beyond um, that kind of mourning period. Um, and yeah, I just really loved it. I thought it was really a, a, a kind biography, but also like pointed out her mistakes and the things that she had done wrong um, and didn't, uh, yeah, didn't, uh, didn't sugarcoat anything, I didn't think. So um, if you are into giant biographies of queens, uh, Victoria the Queen by Julia Baird is definitely a good one, in my opinion. See, and I do appreciate your love for her because I feel like it makes her more understandable to me uh, as opposed to, again, just this image I have of her, which is of her like Empress of India photographs where she looks extremely stern and uh, yes. just terrifying. Yeah. And she had a weird thing late in her life, too. Um yeah, I mean, she definitely has, like, questionable periods, and, like, she's not a perfect person by any stretch. But I just think her young, younger years are particularly fascinating and, like, what that was like for someone of her age and to be kind of thrust into the spotlight and also into a position of, like, ruling the country all at the same time. Interesting. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I do have that biography, Victoria the Queen, and uh, I will try to read it at some point to get, get, a, get a better <laughs> – better perspective on her um and who sorry who was that by uh julia baird great awesome um so i was going to talk about someone first i was going to talk about someone i hated and now i have decided to switch the order and talk about first someone i love so that we do a positive note um and they are from the same time period so let's get into this uh my first royals pick is elizabeth and lester by sarah gristwood i love them so much okay so starting <laughs> Let me just real quick background. When I was five, my family and I went to England and I got really into Henry VIII and his six wives like you do. So then mm -hmm. we, came, we came back. I was really into them. And then when I was like 15, something happened and I suddenly was like, Elizabeth. And so uh, I went to the library and I read every single book I could find about Elizabeth, mostly novels and mostly concerned about her relationship with the Earl of Leicester, um, who is Robert Dudley, her childhood friend. Um, I... Oh my gosh. Okay. So this book is relatively recent. I think it's like 2007. Um, by relatively, I mean other books I've read about them are from like the 1950s. So uh, this is a slightly more up-to-date thing. So it talks about their personal and their political relationship. She made him her master of horse um, when she first became queen and when she was 25 so that he could kind of just be near her all the time. Um, they, I think they first met when they were around 12 and they had the same tutor, but, um, so they had been friends this whole time. They had survived all this together. They, first of all, they had survived, um, under the many mm -hmm. changing, uh, rulers, including of course her half sister, Mary, um, all of this amazing stuff had to happen, right. For her to reach the throne. So then, 
Um, she, of course, cannot marry him once she becomes queen for several reasons, one of which being he is married. Then they have the whole terrifying, tragic affair of his wife dying by having her neck broken at the base of a staircase, um, which basically guarantees they can never get married because it's very suspicious. Um, my favorite thing about them, which is I just I tell as many people as I can, which is an awkward thing to wedge into conversation. But um, in this case, it's totally apt, is that when she died in 1603, he had died in 1588. Right. So we're talking 15 years later. They find in a box next to her bed a letter and on it she had written his last letter which is the last damn letter that he wrote to her from the Netherlands when he was Aww. over there. Yeah, because that's where he died. Um, I just love them. Anyway, uh, Elizabeth and Lester by Sarah Gristwood. You should find out about the amazing story of Queen Elizabeth I and Robert Dudley, Earl of Leicester. All right, you can go. She is a super fascinating lady. Yep, absolutely. I think like every kid who loves royals at some point has been like, why can't I be Queen Elizabeth? That's Freaking amazing. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, so I'm going to talk really pretty briefly about two books um, that are on my shelves right now that I haven't read yet, but that I think are have promised to be particularly interesting. Um, and the first one is called Princes at War, The Bitter Battle Inside Britain's Royal Family in the Darkest Days of World War II by Deborah Cadbury. Uh, and so this book is an in-depth look at kind of the year 1936 and what was going on in the British monarchy. Um, and at that time, it was sort of two major happenings. Uh, It was the abdication crisis, and it was also uh, the Nazis were kind of rising as a threat in Europe. And so um, so in 1936, all this was happening, and Britain was in the hands of George V's sorely unequipped sons. Uh, And so the book is a look at those four brothers and, like, everything that was happening with them and uh, the kind of this crisis at the time and how they were all sort of dealing with that. and I don't know. That's just a really interesting period. And I think we it's a, something, a period we don't... I mean, there is a lot known about it, but there's a lot that also we don't know. And there's sort of a kind of top-level story about the abdication and Wallace Simpson and all of that kind of stuff. And then there's kind of the underlying things that were gone. So this book, as I understand it, sort of takes the story after like what the King's speech kind of covered and then goes sort of forward from there. So um, that one I'm, I'm excited about and hoping to pick up soonish. Um and then the second book is uh, Game of Crowns, Elizabeth, Camilla, Kate, and the Throne by Christopher Anderson, um, which is a 2015 book that looks at the three women at the time who are kind of centered around the crown, which is Queen Elizabeth II, uh, Camilla Parker Bowles, who's the wife of Prince Charles, and then Kate Middleton, who is the wife of um, Prince William. And so it's a book about these three women and how they interact with each other and how they interact with the monarchy and what their different backgrounds and styles say about kind of the current and future or past, present and future of the monarchy um, and where it might go. Um, and yeah, I, I think that that is kind of, I am interested mostly in the women associated with the throne rather than the dudes most of the time. Um, so I think that seeing those three women in kind of relationship and in contrast with each other, will be an interesting read. Um, so that one is, so the two books are The Prince is at War by Deborah Cadbury and Game of Crowns by Christopher Anderson. Can I say how happy I am about how contrasting slash complimentary our interest in the royalty uh, of England uh, is, are, whatever. Um, because I don't know really anything about the 20th century or about Victoria. And then here you are with all of these wonderful recommendations. So uh, thank you. 
Kim. Yes. For that. We should have done have these you- in time order. That would have been sensible, but whatever. Uh, oh, whatever. Did you, um, have you seen The Windsors on Netflix? I have seen it, but I have not watched it. Oh, you mean like you've seen like the car? I've seen it scroll. Yeah, but I haven't stopped mm-hmm. to watch it. No. Okay, so if you just want like sheer ridiculousness, it's it's basically the antithesis of the crown. So I don't know if you would like it, <laughs> but it's it's like it's it's a British royalty, like current British royalty soap opera, basically. But like also completely like with no uh, respect for logic or sense or anything. And like Camilla is trying to. Uh, at, at one point, she puts a bomb underneath like the royal family Christmas party because she is trying to destroy them all because she wants to take over the monarchy. It's so great. Like everyone is just having an awesome time. And I love it so much. Pippa is trying to like nefariously get Harry. But then in season two, they introduce Meghan Markle because like that twist had happened in real life. Right. Obviously not that not that Pippa had been trying to steal Harry. Anyway, it's great. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, that sounds awesome. Yeah, and it's so timely. Yes, a contemporary book that I particularly love that's in that vein is uh, The Royal We. And it's by um, Heather and Jessica, who are the Fug Girls. And it's basically like William and Kate fan fiction. And it is just the most delightful thing. So I feel like that TV (laughs) show is definitely in the vein of imaginative British royal things that I would definitely enjoy in my spare time. Mm Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Um, to wrap up our, our royal segment, sadly enough, I feel like we could keep going. Um, I have two picks, uh, although one is a series, but I will quickly gloss over it. Um, my first is the person that I just, oh my gosh, I can't stand her. Um, Mary Queen of Scots. So <laughs> ever since, I think when I first got into Elizabeth, I immediately uh, developed this kind of, um, I think it's antipathy for Mary Queen of Scots. She is an almost exact contemporary of Elizabeth. They are first cousins, I think. Um, and she is, she's just, if, if you look at Elizabeth as an example, right, of a successful monarch, she reigned for 45 years. England was, they was doing pretty well during that time. Um, she kept it out of war, all this stuff. Mary Queen of Scots is the exact opposite. Horrible, horrible monarch, <laughs> terrible decisions all the time. I cannot stand her. And romanticism just buoyed her up so much. And now people just like, they, obviously the show Rain, R-E-I-G-N, um, yes. is about her. Uh, and mm-hmm. I do like her on that show, but how can you not? Adelaide Kane is just very charming. Um, yeah. So, but that's the only time I've ever, ever liked Mary Queen of Scots. So uh, people keep making things about her. There is a new movie coming out in December starring uh, Saoirse Ronan. And uh, oh, as Mary. Yeah. Yeah, it's going to be great. I was so excited about it on Twitter all this week. Um, so Saoirse Ronan is playing Mary Queen of Scots and Margot Robbie is playing Elizabeth I. And it looks like it spans their entire lives. I'm so psyched. Anyway, the book that I want to talk about is Mary Queen of Scots, A Study in Failure by Jenny Wormel. <laughs> I cannot tell you when I saw that title, um, I lost my mind. And I was like, I'm ordering this book immediately. This was like a year or two ago. Um, it's so funny. And well, just the opening is funny, just in terms of she seems genuinely bewildered by how popular Mary is. She says, this is the only quote I will do, is my contribution is a book which portrays a monarch of little wit and no judgment, to paraphrase Elizabeth's description of Thomas Seymour, a ruler whose life was marked by irresponsibility and failure on a scale unparalleled in her own day. Oh, God. So happy. Yeah. Yeah. And she's Scottish. So I feel like she definitely has a right <laughs> to talk about this. Um, I just, yeah, 
just this this whole I, I don't know anyway I recommend it Mary Queen of Scots a study in failure um there is a second edition which changed the subheading but obviously you want to get the first one that has the failure in the title <laughs> Um, the only other thing I want to talk about is uh, the Penguin Monarch series, which I have two friends who are in England right now, and I asked them to pick me up three more of these. So I was there last year, um, and basically Penguin started issuing these really slim volumes, which is a phrase I love, uh, of the royal family, or not the royal family, but like royalty in England going back to, I believe, the very beginning, um, which is what, King Alfred or something in the year 800? I don't know. Um, so don't the know. ones that I... The ones that I got when I was there were Charles II and William and Mary because I didn't really know anything about them. But mm -hmm. I have since decided that I want all of them. And what's amazing is not only are they beautiful and little, but the they, they're all white except for there's one black one and it's Cromwell. And so it's just visually huh. very striking. Yeah, right? Oh, gosh. Um. Anyway, so Penguin Monarch series. Check it out. It's pretty good. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, I love the. I'm gonna go back to the quick study and failure quick. Like, it's funny because like when you read a biography, you can sort of tell like whether the author is like friendly to the person they're writing about or whether they're like antagonistic to the person they're writing about. But it's not usually like that obvious. Like, you have to read between the lines a little <laughs> bit to decide like is this a nice biography or are they being like particularly mean? But no, this one's just like no, dumb, terrible. I thought that that made me laugh. <laughs> Dumb and terrible. Right. Dumb and terrible is a wonderful way of summing up Mary Queen of Scots. Okay, I'm done. Man, that's spicy. All right. Uh, so segment <laughs> three uh, this week, we're gonna turn gears completely, I think, um, and talk about uh, nonfiction comics, uh, specifically nonfiction graphic novel. Or I don't even know, like, because you don't want to say comic memoirs because these are not. That makes me think that they're funny, but if you call them graphic novel memoirs, it sounds like they're fiction. Like I don't even, I don't even know. I think, I think it's, I think it's just graphic memoir, right? Yes, that's probably right. I just made it way more complicated than it had to be. <laughs> that's fine. <laughs> but no, no, there's a reason I don't like graphic memoirs because when you say graphic, I think it makes it sound like explicit, which is oh. not it either. I knew there was, yeah. So I don't know. I don't know what the term we want is, but it is memoirs that are in comic form. Uh, so that is what we thought we would kind of switch gears and talk about that since that's a really, I mean, we can talk about this for like hours and hours because there's a ton of them, but we're going to bring it down and then maybe we'll do this one again sometime later. So, um, I'll let you go first this time. Oh, sure. Um, yeah. My first pick for a graphic comic memoir, whatever we're calling it, is, uh, Marbles. Mania, Depression, Michelangelo and Me by Ellen Forney. Um, so basically, right before she turned 30, um, Ellen Forney was diagnosed with bipolar disorder. And the whole uh, memoir is her trying to deal with the, like, basically worry that medications would cause her to lose her creativity. And so she's sort of throughout it trying to find mental stability while retaining her passion and creativity. Um, she had worked, I think, or interned or something at a um, mental hospital and had basically seen the change that medication could, um, I was going to say wreak on a person. And I feel like, no, that's not the right word, but uh, the effect that it could have on someone. Um, and so she was really worried because art was her life, uh, is her life. Obviously she illustrated this whole memoir. Um, it's really, really good, and um, she kind of does this 
I feel like the the medium get, makes it, it gives you this very particular way, obviously, of seeing um, bipolar disorder and how she sees and experiences things, um, especially mm-hmm. as an artist um, with this. And she has this whole thing where she has like a list of, you know, famous people who are people think probably had bipolar disorder. And um, it's oh, it's a lot of artists. <laughs> I'm just saying. Um, but also a lot of people who, um, you know, had some. Um, pretty violent ends. So she's kind of also trying to keep that in mind while wanting to, again, retain her whole um, creative aspect. So mm-hmm. yeah, I recommend it. Um, Marbles by Ellen Forney by Avery Press. Yeah, I've seen that one uh, lots of different places and just never picked it up, but I've heard really good things about it. So yeah. Um, so I'm going to talk about sort of an, a comic artist who's done a bunch of memoirs that I really like. Um, and the one I'm going to highlight specifically is called Displacement, a Travelogue by Loosely. Lucy Kinsley, uh, K-N-I-S-L-E-Y. I think I probably said that wrong. Um, and so she's a, a comic book artist and she has been doing these really charming comic kind of memoir travelogue type pieces um, for for a long time. And so she has uh, she did one about uh, visiting France. She did one about her love of food. She did one about um, traveling through Europe. She did one about her... Um, process of getting married. Uh, But Displacement, which of all of hers that I've read is the one that kind of affected me the most, uh, is a story about watching over her ailing grandparents on a cruise. Uh, And so her, I can't remember the context of why they end up going, but Lucy is going to kind of chaperone her grandparents on this cruise. And so it's all about kind of traveling with these two older people who are in, you know, ailing health and some you know, mental issues that are kind of starting to crop up for them. Um, so it's about her kind of her experience that she's about traveling in the places that they go. It's a bit of family history because she um, kind of parallel or includes some excerpts from her grandfather's World War II memoir in the comic. Um, and so she kind of connects with all of those different things. It's about her kind of coming to think about her own aging process and all of that. Um, and so of all of her books that I've read, and I've, I think I've read all of them, um, this one, Displacement, has just this really lovely sense of maturity and thoughtfulness to it um, and kind of seriousness without being heavy, I guess. Um, and she has a really just lovely drawing style. It's kind of sketchy and looks almost like watercolory, I think, um, or like colored pencils um so it's really they're very pretty like beautiful easy books to jump through um and i yeah i think really interesting she's working on a new one now that's going to come out this fall or next year probably next year um about uh having her first kid um so i'm really excited about that too but um the one i want to specifically mention as displacement a travelogue by lucy kinsley k-n-i-s-l-e-y that was a really good pitch kim i will check her out thank you <laughs> um yeah no and that's uh vaguely sort of reminds me of my next pick um which is just in terms of what you're talking about with her uh what sort of sense of like with the watercolors and so it's like beautiful art but then also this like very mature theme of you know like mm-hmm. in-depth things I, you said it much more eloquently anyway um <laughs> so it is uh my, my pick is a bintel brief Love and Longing in New York by Liana Fink. Uh, that's published by Echo. So a bintel brief uh, means a bundle of letters, basically. Um, and it was the enormously popular advice column of The Forward, which was a widely read Yiddish language newspaper uh, that started in 1906 in New York. Um, so it's letters to The Forward, right? And then the um, 
journalist at the forward answers them. So it's written by this diverse community of Eastern European Jewish immigrants, and they talk about the daily heartbreaks and comedies of their new lives um, and sort of capturing, you know, the sort of like hope and isolation of assimilation, right? Because during 1906, that's during this huge wave of immigration that we're having um, into the United States, including my great-grandparents from Ukraine. Anyway, Hmm. Yeah. Uh, so um, a mental brief, I picked it up initially um, at my local indie bookstore, Unabridged Books in Chicago, and they have a really wonderful selection of graphic memoirs. And um, I flipped through it and I immediately was like, oh, huh, I am buying this because it's really short, but also really striking looking. The art is um, different from I think what I'm because I think a lot of stuff now is very when it's called like a comic or a graphic memoir, I think it looks very comic-y. And this yeah. looks, um, I think it reminds me a little bit of Mouse by Art Spiegelman, um, which I also should have re- recommended. But I think I feel like everyone has read Mouse. Um, maybe that's yeah, wrong. Yeah, I was going to talk about Persepolis, but I feel like everyone knows about Persepolis. So I was like, it's all right. Yeah. So, you know, kind of um, in that sort of really not like experimental, but just different. You know, you look at it and you're like, mm-hmm. this is strike. This is striking. Um, so I, I really, really like it. It's got these stories that are really heartbreaking or really sweet and they're real stories, but they're, you know, interpreted by Liana Fink in her art. Um, so yeah, A Bintel Brief, Love and Longing in New York by Liana Fink. Uh, it's great. <laughs> pick it up. Yeah, that sounds really lovely. Um, good, good pick. Um so my next pick is a book called Rolling Blackouts by Sarah Glidden. And it is um, kind of a meta-ish comic. Um, so the, the setup of it is that Sarah is a cartoonist and illustrator. And she decides to accompany two of her friends who are journalists on a reporting trip to Turkey, Iraq, and Syria. Um, with the hope that she could better understand kind of the purpose of journalism and how journalists do their work by following these friends of hers and by kind of almost like reporting or writing on their process as journalists while they work. And these journalists work for a small nonprofit. I think it was a nonprofit, a, a very small agency. And so a lot of the work that they're doing is the reporting, but also trying to pitch the stories and finding places for the story to go. Um, so there's kind of an interesting um it's not journalism like for a mainstream newspaper. It's journal, kind of an underground, um, not underground. Um, I don't know. It's sort of a, a grassroots. Yeah, grassroots. Thank you. That's what I wanted. I'm um, kind of a grassroots journalism effort that they're engaging on. Um, and so the trip and the reporting that they're doing is about on the effects of the Iraq War and on the lives of refugees. Um, but the their trip is kind of complicated by a fourth person who travels with them, who is a, a childhood friend of the two journalists and also a former Marine who was deployed in Iraq in 2007. And so he is kind of on a, a side of this story, kind of providing his experience, his um perceptions and experiences of veteran and what his experience as a soldier in Iraq were contrasted with the stories of civilians and refugees and officials that they're kind of talking to, trying to find these interesting stories that then they can market and sell uh, to American audiences through various um, news organizations. Um, And I I don't remember what year it was published, and I read it last year. Um, And even at that time, parts of it felt to me a little bit Dated just because stuff in that region changes so fast that um, something that is true even, you know, today may not be true six months from now. Um, so it's a little bit, it, it, feel, it feels a little dated, but it's still a really interesting, like, portrait and capture of a particular moment. Um, and I really loved the way it was illustrated. Like, the it's kind of a very 
simple style, but the the coloring in it is really beautiful. Again, um, she has a very, um, yeah, just a very pretty style, but um, kind of illustrating some very kind of serious places and themes. Um, and I also appreciated that um, she, uh, Sarah Glidden, had a very uh, strong sense of empathy for all of the people that she was um, illustrating and encountering in this book. Um, she recognized like people's limitations and also the challenge that they were facing and really, I thought, did a really nice job explaining how journalism works and what journalists do and some of the um, considerations that they have when they're trying to figure out what kinds of stories to tell and how to tell them. Um, So I kind of liked it from a lot of different angles. Um, So yeah, that book was Rolling Blackouts by Sarah Glidden. Oh, I just Google imaged that and it looks really good. So good Mm -hmm. and good description of when you were talking about how like the art was really interesting. I was like, oh, I will look that up. And yes, indeed it is. Um, Okay, so uh, my final pick for uh, our section, comic memoirs, is Tomboy by Liz Prince. Um, So this is a memoir told anecdotally. Uh, Tomboy follows author and zine artist Liz Prince through her early childhood into adulthood and explores her ever-evolving struggles and wishes regarding what it means to be a girl. Um, I think based on... This is another book that I picked up while browsing it unabridged. Um, Based on the title, I assumed that this was kind of about... um, basically being like a butch lesbian, to be honest. So uh, I was, Mm. while I was reading it, I was surprised that she is very insistent in it, like as her younger self, like it's mostly at her as a teenager, um, that she is straight. She just doesn't conform to, you know, this idea of what it means to be a girl, especially while she's growing up. She always feels very comfortable in like really baggy clothes and dressing like a, well, you know, quote unquote, like a boy. Um, Mm -hmm. And then hanging out with guys because they have, you know, like, they have like more common interests than like what her friends who are girls want to do. Um, it's just a really interesting exploration of gender identity and uh, how we sort of figure out who we are. Um, so yeah, it was, it was surprising. It was good. It's a quick read. Yeah. Just, yeah. I would have maybe had the same assumption picking it up, but it's interesting. Yeah. That it just explores just something different. Um, yeah. Cool. Uh, so with that, we're going to close out the show as we normally do with talking about the books we are reading uh, right now, uh, which I think is always fun um, just to like see what is what is on the table. So um, I'm actually in the middle of I feel like I'm in the middle of like a ton of books right now that I kind of have read like five chapters of and then put down for some reason and then picked up something else. Like I'm having a very weird like reading time. Yep, you know what I mean? Yep. Um <laughs> <laughs> it's very weird. Um, but the two that I wanted to just mention that I um, feel like maybe I haven't talked about before because a lot of them are books that we've talked about before. Um, the first one is called I Contain Multiple Multitudes by Ed Young. And this is a science book all about uh, bacteria and microbes. Uh, so it is about the microbes within us and a grander view of life. So it's looking at uh, sort of the evolution of life on the planet and the role that microbes and whatnot have played. And then the role that microbes have in all of, all of us and all animals and in the sea and everywhere, basically Uh, microbes are everywhere. Um, It's the moral of the story. Uh, And yeah, so the role that they play and then um, 
the what studying microbes can tell us about the way evolution has happened on the planet. Um, so the for the first chapter uh, goes back to Alfred Russell Wallace. That's his name, right? The Darwin contemporary who also discovered evolution. Yeah. Or is it? Yeah, that's him. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I always I always get his name wrong. Um, but anyway, it starts out with him and talking about how his kind of discovery of bio um, biogeography and that the way we evolved can tell us kind of where species were. Um, there, that that kind of research is happening with microbes right now. So, you know, taking microbes from different animals and then seeing how they are the same and different to see if that can tell us anything about how those animals evolved and what they, uh, that kind of stuff. So uh, microbe research is in a like really early, new, interesting stage. Um, so it's going to talk about that a little bit too. So um, yeah, it's just like an interesting science-y kind of narrative fiction. And one of the reasons I got excited to pick it up was because um, Ed Young in The Atlantic several months ago now, wrote an article about how he, um, he's a science journalist. And so he did an audit of his stories to see how well he was representing women in particular in his science writing. So was he, was he going to women as sources in science because there are women available? And Aww. he turned out he wasn't. He, his science reporting was really male. And so he was, the piece was about his concerted effort to represent women in science more in his articles and the steps, the concrete steps that he took to make sure that he was interviewing more women, that he was contacting more women, that he was reflecting the research of more women so that his writing was more equitable, equitable and reflective of the way science is changing. Um, and I thought it was fascinating. Like it was very data driven of like looking at it and saying, I'm not doing enough, good enough job at this and I'm going to fix it. Um, yeah. And so I just, I was really impressed with that. And so then I was like, I want to buy your book and I want to read it because I think that you're a good person doing good things. Oh my um, gosh. So that's part of why I picked it up. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. I love that. Um, and also, can I say when you were saying like that now they're finding out, like they're doing research into like history of animals with like this bioorganisms thing. Um, my face was so excited because that sounds amazing. <laughs> and then it switched to like this like, face when you were talking about him being like, I, am I doing a good enough job? No, I am not. Um, yeah, that. So I will do better. Yeah, that guy's great. Awesome. Yeah, so it's good. Um, and then the other book I wanted to mention real quick, because it's very short and I probably won't be reading it for very much longer, uh, is a book called Dear Madam President by Jennifer Palmari. Uh, and this one just came for me at the library today. So that was very exciting. Um, and this is a book, Jennifer Palmari was um, the communications director, I think, for Hillary Clinton's presidential campaign. Um, and so this book is a, a letter, an open letter to the women who will run the world. And so it's it's a really short little book, but it's, you know, the lessons she learned while working on the Clinton campaign, um, some of her thoughts on women in power and leadership positions and how working on the campaign changed some of her ideas about what it means to be a woman running for office and what it would mean to be a woman as president. Um, and I... I don't know if I would normally pick up a book like this because it looks kind of small and like one of those books that you might give somebody for a, like a college graduation present. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, but I heard her on a couple of different podcasts and she sounded super smart and super interesting and would told this story on a couple of them about her um, kind of realization that like sometimes it's okay to cry at work and that sometimes that is important and you should do that and we should stop being ashamed of people crying at work. And I was like, well, okay, fine. I want to read your book now. That sounds interesting. <laughs> so, oh my gosh. Uh, Dear Madam President by Jennifer Palmari. Wow. 
what I'm reading now is so different than either of those. Um, that sounds really good. And also, yes, we should be able to cry at work. Um, right, we yeah. should. Uh, yeah, I'm reading, um, it's called The Escape of, I'm ashamed of it. It's called The Escape of Charles II. Uh, sorry, The Escape of Charles II After the Battle of Worcester by Richard Allard. Um, so I picked this up because I was at my parents' home for the past week, and it was on my childhood bookshelf. I don't know why. I think I remember. I think I remember buying it when I was a teenager, and then I just never read it. Um, so basically, I didn't know anything about the Stuarts except that Charles the First got his head chopped off, and James the First seems to have sucked. So um, I was like, "Oh, sure. Like this is a short little book. It's 148 pages. I'll read it." I still haven't finished it, and I've been working on it for a week. So it's. I looked at it on Goodreads and everyone was like, this is so good and enthralling. No, it's not. So basically, I feel like I have to finish it because I have 40 more pages. But it's like Charles II is trying to, you know, defeat the Commonwealth and Oliver Cromwell. But then his army gets defeated. So he has to escape England. So the whole like 148 pages is this guy detailing his move from house to house as he tries to get out of England. <laughs> I don't understand why anyone thinks this is enthralling. Like, yeah, it's cool in that he utilized like the Catholic network in uh, England that was, you know, already underground. So they were really good at hiding people. Um, but, oh my gosh, it sucks. And I'm really sad that I'm going to finish it. <laughs> but I just want it on record that, uh, I don't know, it's bad. And I can't believe that Goodreads people like it <laughs> so much. All right, I'm done. Uh, that's funny. What was the name oh, of that right. one? In case people want to read it, it's The Escape of Charles II After the Battle of Worcester. <sighs> yeah. That's really funny. I do get the like hate reading thing though. Like <laughs> if a book is short enough and you get far enough into it, you're like, God dang, I just need to... <laughs> I need to finish this so I can say that I did. And then I can tell everyone legitimately, like, this book is not good and I do not recommend it. <laughs> and I read it instead of just complaining about it, assuming that it's bad. Uh, that's why I read, uh, I I that's why I read Twilight, just so that I could legit complain. Anyway, uh, I think that's I think that's the end. I think I, I think I read Twilight for the same reason. Oh. Yeah. We could talk about Twilight for a while. I listened to it on an audiobook. Oh, I'm sorry. It was, was that. was you know, it actually it wasn't as bad as you think. It was, it was, it was fine. I did not continue the series. I read the summaries on Goodreads, uh, but uh, yeah, that's another discussion, is, I suppose. Maybe another maybe. day. Um, awesome. So uh, that's the end of this episode, I believe. Um, and you can find us on social media to hear more of these lovely sort of thoughts um, on. <laughs> on twitter uh, i am at it's alice time and you can find kim at at kim the dork uh yeah that's social media i think yes and uh that is social media <laughs> uh, and if you have a chance <laughs> and wouldn't mind uh rating and reviewing us on itunes uh that helps other people find the show more easily uh, and also you can subscribe on your podcaster of choice so you can get our new episodes at the very moment that they come out and so with that, I am Kim Ukra. And I'm Alice Burton. And thank you very much for listening to the For Real Podcast. Bye.